Welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasnow. Today on the show, I welcome Dr. Chris Palmer. Chris is a board-certified psychiatrist, Harvard professor, and author of the new book, Brain Energy, a revolutionary breakthrough in understanding mental health and improving treatment for anxiety, depression, OCD, PTSD, and more. This fascinating book is the product of 23 years of clinical practice and research focused on people suffering from treatment-resistant mental illnesses, including mood, psychotic, and personality disorders. Over this period, Chris observed hundreds of patients with myriad psychiatric and neurological disorders. Many had different diagnoses, but often shared the same symptoms. Some of them responded to antidepressants and anti-anxiety medications, and others didn't. Now, Chris had his aha moment treating one patient who suffered from severe treatment-resistant depression and was also obese. Yes, these conditions are often correlated. Chris put his patient on a form of the ketogenic diet to address weight loss. The patient not only lost weight, but his depressive symptoms started to recede. This led Chris to ask the question, could there be a unified theory that underwrites mental illness? Could mental disorders actually be metabolic disorders in the brain? This is the fascinating topic of our discussion today. Before we dive in, here's a brief reminder about our Commune course platform. If you're interested in functional and integrative medicine-based programs with fantastic doctors like Mary Pardee, Mark Hyman, Sarah Gottfried, Kara Fitzgerald, and Roger Schwelt on topics such as gut health, sleep, immunity, hormone balancing, Ayurveda, and nutrition, well, you can sign up for 14 days of free all-access to Commune's entire course library, including more than 100 courses on health, personal growth, and social impact. Just go to onecommune.com trial. And please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite podcatcher. Okay, without further delay, I present to you Dr. Chris Palmer. Okay, Dr. Chris Palmer, what a treat to be with you. Welcome to the Commune Podcast. Thank you for inviting me. It's a treat to be here. Yeah, so I've just finished your new work, uh, Brain Energy, and um, I just must say it's uh, it's thought-provoking and just astounding in every aspect and, and truly reframes uh, how we can begin to think about mental illness and, and mental disorders. And, you know, just given the scale of the human suffering associated with this problem, um, we really just need someone to guide us through the wilderness. So, so thank you for being that Sherpa and, and well done. Thank you. So w- one of the primary quests of this book, is, and I would say your work in general, is to create a, a unified theory of, of mental illness and what you call the, the brain energy theory. And I hope that 
in our conversation today, we can back our way into this revolutionary thesis. Um, with the point, you know, is really that listeners can emerge with a greater understanding of mental health and the potential improved methods for treatment in connection with that understanding, because that's what we really want. We want to ameliorate the human condition. But this is such a confusing topic uh, for so many people, partially because there are so many different diagnoses and categories of diagnoses. So in, in order to set the chess pieces here, perhaps you can help unpack the uh, taxonomy, if you will, of mental disorders and what are the most prevalent ones, what are the differences between psychiatric and, and neurological disorders, and give us a sense of the scale of these disorders in modern society. Yeah, it's, <clears throat> as you said, it's a really confusing area, and it it is an area filled with contentious debate by the world's leading experts, psychiatrists, neuroscientists, psychologists, all just vehemently fight with each other over what we should call different disorders, how we should lump them together, how we should split them apart, what symptoms matter. Um, and we really don't have a clear consensus. The closest that we have to a consensus is this book called The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. Yeah. Um, it's now in its fifth edition, uh, and it is published by the American Psychiatric Association. And the overarching premise of DSM is that there are all of these different mental disorders and they are composed of different symptoms, but we make the assumption that they are unique and separate diagnoses. Mm -hmm. And on the surface, it makes sense. And a lot of the labels that get assigned in DSM are household names. We have all heard them since we were children. Mm -hmm. Names like schizophrenia, bipolar, depression, alcohol use disorder, which used to be called alcoholism, um, opioid addiction or opioid use disorder, anorexia nervosa, bulimia, OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, ADHD. And as I say those labels, you know, certainly in my mind as a psychiatrist, I get clear pictures of, well, that's a person who's doing this, or that's a person who's having these symptoms. And yes, those are all very different disorders. And so they must have different causes. They certainly have different symptoms. They have different treatments. And so they, it makes sense that they're all different and we have this big book with all of these different labels. One thing that most people don't know is that all of those labels, every single one of them, are what we call syndromes in the medical field. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that nobody actually knows what causes them. And we don't know for certain that they're even valid diagnoses. Instead, what they are is they are constellation of signs and symptoms, and we group them and lump them in various ways, and we call them disorders. And we then make the assumption that they are unique diagnoses. 
So if I say somebody has schizophrenia, most of you know what that means. And most of you make wild assumptions about what that person is like and what that person is going to be like for the rest of his life. If I say a young woman has anorexia nervosa, most people know what that means. But the reality is that when we look at real people with any of these disorders, the diagnostic categories and labels start to fall apart, unfortunately. Chris, this is such a confusing topic for so many people because there are so many different categories of diagnoses. Um, So in order to set the chessboard a little bit here, I think it'd be helpful for people if you could unpack uh, the taxonomy a bit of, of mental disorders and what are the most prevalent disorders? Uh, what is the delinea- delineation between neurological and psychiatric disorders? And just a sense of the scale uh, of these disorders uh, as it pertains to modern society. Yeah, it's a huge yeah. question. Um, and So actually, maybe let me start with a scale. So prior to the pandemic, um, you know, we have the most robust data worldwide from 2017 at this point. Um, It takes years for, you know, organizations like the World Health Organization to update their statistics. So in 2017, just a little bit shy of 1 billion people on the planet were currently diagnosed with a mental disorder in the last 12 months. 1 billion. And 1 uh, billion. That's about 13% of the world's population. Right, so we're talking about a global population of about 8 billion. So one in every eight. Yep. Yes. Wow. And so in the United States and other Western countries, the rates have been higher. And so in the United States, the rates are about 20% of people will suffer from a mental disorder in any given year. It's one in five people. Um, If you look at lifetime prevalence rates, however, they are much higher. About one in two people, 50% of all people in the United States will meet the criteria for a mental disorder at some point or another during their lifetime. Wow. That's astounding. The most common mental disorders are anxiety disorders, followed by depression. And although most people think of anxiety and depression as fairly simple and straightforward diagnoses, and they assume we have really good treatments because we hear that message all the time. Get mental health treatment. You'll get better. Help is available. Let's decrease the stigma and shame and let's get people help. The very sad reality is that our treatments fail to work for far too many people, even people with plain old simple depression. And in fact, depression is now the leading cause of disability on the entire planet. It is certainly the leading cause of disability in the United States as well. And that is above all medical diagnoses. So that means more people are disabled by depression than heart failure or cancer or back pain or any other medical diagnosis. Wow. And what is the correlation between people that are clinically depressed 
and people who have other forms of chronic disease and other forms of disorders like eating disorders. Is there a, a significant crossover there? There is. So people with depression often don't just have depression. They are much more likely to also have other physical and mental disorders. And it's across the board. So for example, people with depression, about 50% of them are likely to have some type of a pain disorder. Now that could be migraine headaches or fibromyalgia or low back pain or neuropathy from diabetes. But about 50% that one in two people with chronic depression have a pain disorder. That compares to only about 15% of the general population in the United States. That's just like one example. And but all sorts of other diagnoses. People with mental disorders are more likely to have at least 50 unique and separate physical disorders. Again, all the way from migraines to gastrointestinal problems, but also heart attacks, strokes, type 2 diabetes, type 1 diabetes, autoimmune disorders like hypothyroidism, all sorts of physical disorders. Yeah, and of course, this is bi-directional, right? So it's not just that people it's who true. are depressed are more likely to have diabetes. It's that people who have diabetes are three times more likely to suffer from some mental disorder or, or depression. Is that right? Absolutely. It goes both mm. ways. So people with these physical disorders. And again, so unfortunately, people do a lot of rationalizing right. and hand waving and a little smoke and mirrors action when they talk about these statistics and they assume they know what they mean. So for instance, well, if you had pain, wouldn't you be right. depressed? <clears throat> or if you had a heart attack, wouldn't you be depressed? There's nothing really there. That's just, you know, anybody would be depressed if they had a heart attack. But in fact, People who are depressed are more likely to have heart attacks. And often that, that depression started before they even had the heart attack. And we now have strong reason to believe that at a biological level, that depression is actually a symptom of something larger going on in that person's brain and body that ultimately results in the heart attack. They are not just psychological reactions. So you've got your boots on and you're walking upstream <laughs> and you're kind of, you're trying to find the consilience or um, between some of these diagnoses that seem to be differentiated but may share the same root cause. I mean, you know, you brought up pain, for example. Well, why would someone have a hyperreactive, uh, you know, set of pain neurons, for example? Like, why would that be? Well, you know, <laughs> um, and, and so I think that, you know, one thing that I found to be 
really just fascinating about your book is just the amount of questions that you begin with and um, and your persistence and your curiosity to keep, um, you know, traveling upstream to to unroot some of the some of the causes of this. So. So we have these, you know, um, myriad of diagnoses from depression and schizophrenia and PTSD and ADHD and bipolar disorder and autism. And then we have our neurological disorders of epilepsy and 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 dementia and et cetera. What are the standards of care at this juncture and how effective have those treatments, you know, been over the last generation? So right now, again, the assumption is that all of those different labels that you mentioned are unique and separate diagnoses. Um, and they must have different root causes, um, maybe genetics, but clearly different genetics, or trauma or, you know, chemical imbalances, it must be different neurotransmitters in the brain or different autoimmune or inflammation. But right now, the real answer is nobody knows. Nobody knows what causes any single mental disorder. And that even includes something like post-traumatic stress disorder, where most people on the surface would say, well, everybody knows what causes that. It's called trauma. But in fact, only a, you know, a lot of people are traumatized and experience life-threatening trauma. They can be in horrible car accidents. They can be assaulted. Women can be, and men can be raped. All sorts of horrible, terrible, life-threatening things happen to human beings. But only about 15% of people who experience a trauma end up with post-traumatic stress disorder. And so even something like PTSD, where a lot of people think, well, I know what causes that, it's trauma. Actually, it's not so simple because 85% of people who are traumatized don't end up developing PTSD. So there must be something more to PTSD than just trauma itself. But with all of the diagnoses, um, you know, right now we have this working model called the biopsychosocial right. model, which says there are biological, psychological, and social factors. They all come together to result in all of these different mental disorders, schizophrenia, bipolar, autism, eating disorders, all of them. But one of the reasons that we are having such a hard time finding treatments is because nobody knows exactly how those things fit together. And nobody at the end of the day really knows what causes mental illness. And so most of the treatments that we have have been discovered through serendipity or they've been developed using what seems like common sense. So most of the psychotherapies have been developed making the assumption that, well, these are just thoughts in people's heads. And we need to talk to people about these thoughts and talk them out of their illogical thoughts. And if we talk them out of their illogical thoughts, then they will stop having those symptoms and they will get better and this will cure people. Now, this goes all the way back to Freud and psychoanalysis, but it also includes cognitive behavioral mm -hmm. therapy, that all of those therapies are focused on 
somehow or another, talking to people about their thoughts, emotions, experiences, and other things. And that if we talk enough about them and give people perspective on them, or give people strategies to try to reduce these thoughts, that that will be a cure in and of itself. And the reality is that works mm -hmm. for some people, but it fails to work for far too many people. More than 50% of people who get psychotherapy for any mental disorder do not get a full and lasting remission of that mental disorder, unfortunately. But the same goes for mm -hmm. pills. So pills are based on, well, it must be chemical imbalances, too little serotonin or too much dopamine or not enough norepinephrine. Or, so we've got all these pills that rebalance all of these chemicals and we give people the pills and the pills have really cool names like mood stabilizers. That sounds official <laughs> or antidepressants. Well, how could that not make somebody not depressed? It's an antidepressant. It, it's fighting depression, anti-anxiety pills, antipsychotics. They have good names and they have good labels. But unfortunately, if you look at the outcome studies, they fail to work for far too many people. They do not put these disorders into remission. They do not stop these symptoms long term. And they don't help people. And so the real conundrum is that our field has been struggling to make sense of what causes mental illness. And I would argue until we get clarity on that question, we are not going to be able to develop more effective strategies for how to treat these disorders. So what about genetics, Chris? I mean, what, you know, what about people that say, well, you know, um, depression and psychosis run in my family. So, you know, I've got this gene mutation that is going to, uh, serve as a, as a risk factor for my own mental disorder. Can we look at genetics as a, as the provenance of, of mental disorder? A lot of people do, and our field was actually full of hope when we mapped the Human yeah, Genome Project. A lot of fields were. <laughs> we were yeah. filled with hope that finally, finally, we're going to get some answers. Um, because in fact, we know with certainty these disorders do run in families. I have many patients where you listen to the family history and it is just so obvious it is running in their family. Like out of 10 kids, seven of them have some kind of mental disorder, either schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or schizoaffective or they committed suicide or something. That strongly suggests that this is running in that family. <clears throat> and... Most people assume, well, that means it's genetic then. It must be genetic because if something runs in families, it must be genetic. But in fact, the Human Genome Project has been mapped for over 20 years. We have had billions of dollars spent on research trying to identify where are the schizophrenia genes? Where are the bipolar genes? Where are the depression genes? And the reality is 
those genes do not exist. That is a fact. That is not a hypothesis anymore. That is not a speculation. That is not being a negative naysayer. That is a fact, a biological fact, if you believe in biological research, billions of dollars worth of it. So instead, what we have are we have these risk genes that confer tiny, tiny slivers of risk, and not one gene is associated with only one disorder. Instead, you might have a gene that increases your risk for a mental disorder by 0.001%. Which mental disorder does it increase your risk for that disorder by such a tiny amount? Well, it's actually not just one. It's schizophrenia and bipolar and epilepsy and learning disorders and depression and maybe some other ones. And so even when we look at genetics, the diagnostic distinctions begin to fall apart and the root cause, like a single gene is a single root cause, supposedly, but we don't have any strong single genes that clearly transmit mental disorders. And if you think about it, it kind of makes sense that it's not genetic because if it was genetic, infants would come out that way and they would have symptoms for their entire life. And we know that doesn't happen with most mental disorders. The majority of mental disorders don't start in infancy. Some neurodevelopmental disorders do, but most of the mental disorders do not. And most of the mental disorders even wax and wane, meaning people can be fine for some periods of time and then not fine for other periods of time. And all of that speaks against a purely genetic mm. defect. The tragic news in my mind is that many people are told in no uncertain terms, you have a genetic right. problem. It's called schizophrenia. <clears throat> and what that means is that you are screwed for the rest of your life. You are going to have to live a suboptimal life. You are going to have to accept that you have a defective gene causing a defective brain. And we're really sorry that we don't have better treatments for you. But this is just a fact. And that's what you need to accept. And one of the most powerful messages of the brain energy theory is that that is not at all true. Absolutely. That that kind of messaging completely strips people of their own agency. And, and I think if there's any um, accomplishment of this book, it's really empowering people and giving people, uh, uh, you know, the keys to their own mental car, if you will. Um, you know, I know that there are kind of gene mutations like APOE4, that allele that um, in some cases can point to a greater uh, likelihood of, of Alzheimer's. But these are, but, but some of these genetic factors, I mean, they comprise a very, very small part of the overall picture here in terms of, um, in terms of mental health. And uh, I suppose you could point more directly to epigenetics than genetics. 
in terms of you know what genes are turned on and off and uh, and um, you know to what degree is the expression of particular genes um, influencing mental health and then what are the regulators and mitigators of those of that expression um, but you know, before maybe we jump into epigenetics, I, I don't want to let the kind of chemical imbalance theory um, skate by without just addressing it because it's such a prevalent theory. And, you know, obviously in the, you know, for those of us who follow this, particularly in the last few months, there's been quite a lot written about uh, serotonin and, and sort of upending um, the, the chemical imbalance theory. Uh, but can you talk a little bit about that and and where we are kind of with our understanding of uh, of the serotonin balance theory? So the serotonin imbalance theory um, has actually, for any good neuroscientist, we've known actually for a long time, for many, many years, that that is not correct. Um, and it's not for a lack of trying. So the serotonin imbalance theory was largely developed because we know that medications like Prozac and Zoloft, which affect serotonin systems, they block the reuptake of serotonin. And that means they increase the amount of serotonin between the synapse in the, between a synapse between two neurons. Um, we know that those medications can improve symptoms of depression, at least in some people. And so researchers were scratching their head, like, why would that work? And the logical conclusion they came to without any evidence to support it, but just the logical conclusion was, well, wait, if this drug is increasing serotonin, these people must have a deficit of serotonin, and that must be the reason they're depressed. So that when we give them this drug that increases their serotonin, they get less depressed. Now, on the surface, that really makes sense. It's logical. It's certainly logical. But for the last 20, 30 years, researchers have been doing brain scans and autopsy studies and spinal taps and, you know, blood draws and all sorts of tests trying to measure this serotonin imbalance. And the reality is when you look at all of that evidence, which is the paper that just came out a couple months ago, when you look at the totality of that evidence, the conclusion is there isn't a serotonin imbalance. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it doesn't exist. And it's not for a lack of trying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So again, I want people to understand when you spend billions of dollars of research looking for an answer and that answer consistently is not there. That is an important finding that's worth paying attention to. It's curious because there does seem to be um, some self-reported relief 
associated with higher neurotransmitter levels. Um, and, but if I was trying to read between the lines a little bit in the book of whether you think that serotonin might be actually effective, but by some other mechanism outside of just being there on the synapse and, and potentially serotonin's relationship, for example, to melatonin, it's an antecedent to melatonin. So there could be a relationship there between serotonin and proper sleep. And we'll get into sleep and, and it sleeps impact, um, on uh on mental health but there also seems to be some kind of bi-directional um relationship between neurotransmitters like serotonin and uh certain important organelles in our cells which we'll get to um known as mitochondria so i wonder if you could just touch on this you know and then we'll get into the the entree of, of the we'll get into the entree course here but do you think that serotonin might be effective by some other mechanism? Absolutely. Yeah. So I am not, you know, I, there are a lot of people who, you know, after the paper came out a few months ago that says there is no serotonin imbalance. Mm. There are a lot of people who there then therefore wanted to nullify all of the clinical trials showing that Prozac or Zoloft can actually improve symptoms right. of depression. And then they started claiming fraud by the pharmaceutical companies. Well, they, they must be lying to us. They, they have published fraudulent data. And I, although there are lots of problems with the data that has been published and negative trials do not get published, <laughs> So when you look at meta-analyses of all the research, you have to take them with a grain of salt because we're, you know, largely the medical literature excludes all of the negative trials, sometimes very large ones that get done that say, oh, this pill doesn't actually work. Gee. And if you only publish the studies that show that the pill works, sometimes based on statistics, you can end up with, you know, making it look like something works when in fact it really doesn't. I don't take that kind of conspiracy theory mm -hmm. stance. I go ahead and just say, no, let's just trust the data. Even though, I, you know, I don't 100% trust the data. But, but right. I go ahead and say, let's just trust the data anyway. Let's, let's see. Yeah. Let's just trust the data. All of it's published. All of the pharmaceutical companies are telling us everything we need to know. And their statistics are real. Just because we can't prove that a serotonin imbalance was the cause of the disorder doesn't mean that a serotonergic medication can't help improve mm -hmm. depression. And let me give you just a couple of just tidbits. You mentioned one um, that I'll end with, but you know, one is that, you know, the assumption is that serotonin is largely in the brain because the brain is what controls depression. But in fact, We've now know we've known for a long time. No, actually, ninety to ninety-five percent of the serotonin in the human body is yeah. in the gut. It's in the digestive tract. It's not in the brain. 
And psychiatric researchers have never even looked at that. They really have not done a good job of looking at, is this medication affecting the gut function somehow, which might play a role in metabolism. I'll give you a little sneak (laughs) preview. Um, Because that's what the gut is good at, is kind of absorbing food and nutrients and stimulating hormone production, all related to metabolism. So could serotonin and serotonergic medications be playing their role more through the gut, which we now know communicates with the brain in various ways um, and can influence something like depression? So it could be that simple. But as you mentioned, there are these tiny things in our cells called mitochondria. And at the end of the day, that's one of the key messages of brain energy is that once you understand the science of mitochondria, you can actually start to connect a lot of the dots of the mental health field. And in fact, increasing serotonin actually stimulates the production of more mitochondria and healthy mitochondria. And so it may not be a serotonin imbalance per se, but it may in fact be related to what serotonin is doing to metabolism and mitochondria much Mm. more broadly. Yes. Uh, It's so fascinating. And and then, of course, you know, serotonin is also synthesized uh, by some bacteria in the gut. I think streptococcus and maybe enterococcus. And they're relying on the exogenous... um, consumption of of essential amino acids like tryptophan (laughs) so then you start to like continue to unwind uh this web and uh and you get into something that might have a lot more um relevance to the gut and what's happening in the gut um than would have otherwise um you know been intuited so so we have let's just take stock for a minute so we have a huge variety of mental disorder diagnoses. Many of these disorders share the same symptoms. Treatments on the whole have proved to be incomplete or inadequate. And many of the prominent theories explaining mental disorders are are incomplete and don't address the root cause. So here, let's, let's just take stock there. So what's going on, Chris? I mean, what is upstream from all of these disorders? So that is what I am proposing to answer in brain energy. And I want to, I want to first preface my answer because it is ridiculously bold and grandiose and audacious for me to be proposing what I propose in brain energy. There is no doubt about it. Um, But I want to preface it with that this is not a speculation on my part. This is not, I have a hunch. I'm going to propose a theory, a speculative theory. I'm going to propose an idea. I have this idea. I I think maybe it's this. Instead, what I've done in developing this theory is I took all of the existing research. So decades and decades of clinical research, neuroscience research, neuroimaging research, genetic studies, 
What are the genes? Even the genes that confer tiny risk, what are they doing? Is there a pattern? Is there a theme? But I also explored metabolic research. So that includes research on things like obesity and diabetes and heart, cardiovascular disease um, and even Alzheimer's disease. And I, I looked at that big picture and I tried to see, are there common themes? Are there common patterns? Can we make sense of all of this data to help us understand this confusing mess that we call the mental health field and its overlap with all of these other physical disorders. And at the end of the day, I believe that we have more than enough evidence to be able to say, yes, we can make sense of it. Um, and some of the reason, you know, for people who are rightly skeptical, one of the reasons for this breakthrough really is that over the last 10 to 20 years in particular, there has been an explosion of research on these things in our cells called mitochondria. And most of that research is taking place in the metabolic health yeah. fields. So diabetes, obesity, cardiovascular disease, Alzheimer's, but it's also been taking place in the neuroscience and the mental health field as well. But to date, nobody has integrated them all. Nobody has put them all together. And that is what the brain energy theory does. And so in a nutshell, to answer your big overarching question, I am arguing that the only way to understand mental disorders, all of them, schizophrenia, bipolar, anorexia, alcoholism, depression, all of them, the only way to understand them is to understand them as metabolic disorders of the brain. And in order to understand what that means, you have to understand these tiny things in our cells called mitochondria. And once you do the deep dive in the science of mitochondria, you can connect all of the dots of the mental health field. Much more importantly, you can start to see the big picture and you can understand what's going on. Oh, this is why people with depression have higher rates of pain disorders. Oh, now it makes sense. Oh, this is why people with depression have higher rates of all the other mental disorders, OCD or schizophrenia or eating disorders or alcoholism. Oh, now it starts to make sense. Um, oh, this is why people with mental disorders on average die early deaths. They're dying of heart attacks and strokes and diabetes. Why? The metabolic theory of mental illness helps us understand mm. all of it. Yeah, and I think you make a great point. I mean, it is very accepted now that um, stroke, cardiovascular disease, fatty liver disease, um, cancer, some of these chronic diseases have fallen under kind of the aegis of metabolic dysfunction or kind of metabolic syndrome kind of being perhaps the the progressive precursor to some of these more um, uh, acute um, diseases. So we've categorized, we feel very comfortable categorizing uh, a lot of these diagnoses underneath the kind of the overarching label of metabolic dysfunction, but we haven't done that 
in for the mental health space. And what you're really just doing is connecting those dots because we know that the mind body, we, we've well established the mind body connection at this juncture. So, you know, it, it, to be honest, it feels quite logical to, you know, cur to state the hypothesis. And I also get it. It's like, and sometimes in order to cut through the noise and to present hypotheses, you have to, you know, come up with turns of phrase that seem somewhat like grandiose, you know, like mental disorders are metabolic dysfunctions of the brain. Like that seems like a, a grandiose statement on some level. But once you begin to actually examine and excavate the nature of th that statement, it's actually full of sense making. <laughs> um, one of the, um, the things that I found to be incredibly helpful uh, in the book is that you establish sort of a centralized definition of, of mental illness um, that just encapsulated um, how we can begin to think about this. And, and you know, I, I have them written down, but you may, it's essentially four bullet points. And I, I wonder if you could just outline that so we have a, a, a substrate to work from. Yeah, so at the end of the day, I argue that mental disorders represent the brain not functioning properly. So that's mm -hmm. one thing. And so that automatically distinguishes it between normal reactions to adversity. So everybody gets depressed and anxious at some point. And if you're getting depressed or anxious for an obvious reason, that is not a mental disorder. Your brain is not malfunctioning. You are not a defective human being. You are having a normal human response to adversity. And yet some people have depression for no good reason or it is chronic and unrelenting. Some people have panic attacks for no reason at all, or they're ex extraordinarily anxious for no reason at all. And in those cases, I would say those people ha do have a brain disorder. Their brain is doing something it shouldn't be doing. So the brain is malfunctioning. That malfunction results in mental symptoms, because the brain does a lot of things. It can malfunction and produce hormones that are inappropriate, that's not necessarily, it doesn't necessarily result in mental mm -hmm. symptoms. So we wouldn't really call that a mental disorder. We would call that a hormonal disorder, even though it is from the brain and the brain is doing something inappropriate or um, unusual. Um, so uh, malfunctioning brain results in mental symptoms um, it persists for a period of time, and the period of time is going to be controversial. You know, right now you have to have symptoms of major depression for two weeks in order to get diagnosed with major depression. Um, I, I think it can get tricky for how long these symptoms need to last because it really does depend on the context. If you just lost your, if you're a, you know, Let's say I'm married, I have a wife and three kids, and they are all tragically killed in an auto accident. To imagine that I only get 13 days to be depressed, and then on day 14 I have a brain disorder, is actually kind of silly. Um, it's not very human. 
It's not very compassionate. But that is what the American Psychiatric Association says now, is that I have 13 days to be depressed. And on day 14, if I'm still depressed, I have a brain disorder. Hmm. I don't agree with that. I, I don't think that makes sense. And I, I just, I think that is pejorative and pathologizing human suffering in a way that it shouldn't be pathologized. Mm. Now, that doesn't mean that man doesn't need help. Obviously, if somebody loses their wife and kids, um, that person needs help. But so symptoms have to persist and the symptoms need to result in um, suffering or problems functioning in the world. Mm. So malfunctioning brain results in mental symptoms persists for some period of time and causes suffering or impairment in functioning. And I would say if you have those, then that's probably pretty close Mm -hmm. to a generic definition of what I would call a mental disorder. I actually would probably really prefer the term a metabolic brain disorder, but, uh, but yes, that is what we would call that. And those impairments can be emotional, cognitive, social, motivational. They can check off a number of different boxes. I want to jump into metabolism and and explain to folks just some basic metabolism 101 um, and do it within the context of cell behavior um, because there there are certain characteristics or certain different properties of cell behavior that begin to put their signature on mental illness so uh, you know hyper excitability uh, underactive performance uh, developmental problems that happen more earlier in life and then uh, cell shrinkage um, and and you do a, a great job outlining all of these different categories of cell behavior um, and perhaps from that foundation you can get into metabolism um, the role of metabolism in mental health and the star uh, of the particular show, one uh, one bacteria that jumped to an archaea <laughs> two billion years ago or so, uh, called the mitochondria. Yeah. So most people know metabolism as burning calories, and they think about it as being related to weight. And in fact, it is both of those things. It is burning calories and it does have a strong influence on how much people weigh. But in fact, metabolism is much, much, much more than that. It is fundamental to the definition of living organisms. So, and actually some biologists, you know, like a virus cannot do metabolism on its own. And so some biologists will say a virus is not a living organism because it cannot do metabolism. Even if it has DNA or RNA, even if it is able to replicate itself, um, that is not enough. It can't do metabolism and therefore it isn't living. So 
metabolism, you know, an easy definition is it's the process of taking food and turning it into energy or building blocks that get used to maintain or grow cells. And it also involves the management of waste products. So taking food, oxygen, turning it into energy, building blocks, or managing all the waste products of that process. That's metabolism. Metabolism ends up being fundamental to the function and the structure of all cells. And as you, as you mentioned, I end up delineating five consequences of metabolic dysfunction. And that, um, I'm not sure this is really gotten through to a lot of people, that those five consequences are specific and unique to my book and my theory. I have never seen them published anywhere else by any other scientist. They are what make the brain energy theory mm -hmm. powerful because they help us understand and connect the dots between metabolism and mitochondria and the symptoms that we see and, ex and, and that people experience when they have mental disorders. And there, are, there can be problems with development, uh, shrinkage, um, and maintenance of cells, as you mentioned. But I'm going to just mention those and move on because the two big ones that really account for most mental symptoms are that when a cell is metabolically compromised, it is a bit of a paradox. That same cell can be underactive most of the time. And on the surface, that makes sense to most people. If a cell doesn't have enough energy, it's not going to be able to work right. So if you underpower a car or if you underpower a machine, that machine's just not going to work right. It may not work at all or it might be sluggish. You know, if you underpower the lights, if your battery is going dead in your car and, and that battery is, you know, feeding the lights, the lights aren't going to be as bright or maybe they're not going to work at all. So they're going to be underactive. And that accounts for a lot of the symptoms of mental illness that we see. Underactivity of brain cells and brain networks that perform specific tasks. The paradox, however, is that that same cell can then become hyper excitable. And, and what that means is that the cell over time, like over a few microseconds or nanoseconds even, can <clears throat> store up enough energy to be ready to get turned on again. But then when it gets turned on, cells actually require energy to turn themselves mm. off. And the analogy I give in the book is think of it like brakes on a car. Um, so you can have a car, you can get it sped up, you can get it going, but it also needs to be able to stop at the right time in the right way. And a metabolically compromised cell can't stop in the right time, in the right way. And what that means is it becomes hyper-excitable. And hyper-excitable cells produce experiences that should not be happening. So a hyper-excitable pain cell produces the sensation of pain. A hyper-excitable anxiety pathway cell 
produces the sensation of anxiety when it should not be happening. A hyperexcitable cell that produces the emotion of depression or sadness will produce the experience of depression or sadness. And some hyperexcitable cells can result in people hearing things or seeing things or believing things that aren't mm. true or that aren't there. So let me ask you this. Um, so a compromised metabolism is not going to produce ATP or energy efficiently. And that inefficiency then impacts the ability for cells to turn on or off um, or become hyperactive or stay underactive. Is that a fair understanding of, of the theory? Absolutely. At the end of the day, that is it in a nutshell. There are there's at least one exception to that rule, and that exception is a state called hypomania right. or mania, where this and we have strong reason to believe that this system is hardwired into the human brain, but this system is getting turned on in an inappropriate way. And so it still comes down to the basic problem that kind of the trigger for that hypomania, a hypomanic system or the manic system that results in more energy going to a lot of brain regions that that there you can think of it as like there's a thermostat or a gateway um there there has to be a gateway trigger set somewhere and that system could in fact be metabolically compromised could become hyper excitable could turn the system on when it really shouldn't be turned on and and so at the end of the day 95 plus percent of the time cells are do not have enough atp mm -hmm. which means they don't have enough brain energy that's why i called the book brain yeah. energy <laughs> they don't have enough brain energy and when they don't have enough brain energy they don't yeah. work right and um you know we can explore some of the the different reasons for why that may be whether that's you know um insulin resistance built up in 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 the brain among neurons but i think you know, just so people can understand some of kind of the primary mechanisms in metabolism. So essentially, you know, you're taking in macronutrients, particularly carbohydrates or fats, and those are moving into your bloodstream and being ushered into your cells. And then people, are, I think, are fairly familiar with the term mitochondria. Now, you're through cellular respiration, you can produce a little bit of ATP uh, through glycolysis, but primarily energy or ATP is being created um, within the mitochondria. And the mitochondria is generally using either glucose or free fatty acids or ketones for the production of that energy. But that energy system, that, that power plant can become compromised and that comp that compromising is leading to all these downstream effects of of uh, of metabolic syndrome, et cetera, um, and and then 
many of these mental health issues that, that you've brought up. So the mitochondria is very famous for the production of ATP, but what I found to be fascinating in your book is that it has many, many, many other roles beyond the production of adenosine triphosphate. So can you unpack a few of the many cloaks of responsibility that, uh, that a mitochondria wears? So, yeah, and this, this was really the gold that I kind of stumbled upon as I was working on developing this theory. I didn't set out to actually develop a unifying theory of mental illness. I just, I set out to actually try to figure out why would a ketogenic yeah. diet be helpful <laughs> right. to somebody yeah. with a mental illness? And, and so I started digging and digging and excavating, and this was really the gold that I came upon. So mitochondria are play an instrumental role in the production and regulation of some key neurotransmitters, including serotonin, dopamine, GABA, glutamate, and others. So now we start to get into this chemical imbalance, like why might the chemicals be imbalanced or underactive or overactive or what might be happening? Well, that might be some of the story. Um, mitochondria are directly involved in the production and regulation of some key hormones, including cortisol, estrogen, testosterone, progesterone. Um, that starts to help us understand the stress response, cortisol, but also why some women might have fluctuations in mental symptoms around the time of their periods or after pregnancy um, or uh, around menopause. Mitochondria are actually the primary regulators of epigenetics. So they produce the signals that control at least the majority, at least more than 50% of gene expression in wow. cells. Now, they are not the only story. There are other signaling pathways and molecules that play a role in epigenetics. But mitochondria appear to account for the majority of signals that get sent to the nucleus to control the expression of genes. Mitochondria play a direct um, role in turning inflammation both on and off. They play a role in immune system function. Um, and so I'll I'll even just stop there. So right there, <laughs> for anybody familiar with the mental health field or the connection, like all of the things we've been looking for in the mental health field, like we know that genes are somehow involved or epigenetics at least are involved, but we know that hormones seem to play a role. And we also know that neurotransmitters play a role, but inflammation, yeah. that plays a role. Once you understand mitochondria, once you see the big picture of metabolism and mitochondria, you can actually begin to connect the dots of mental yeah. illness. Well, and when you begin to excavate the history of these uh, uh, eukaryotes um, or, or single-celled organisms, um, you might philosophically come to the place where you say, well, we actually really evolved around them. Um, and this might be the topic of a, of a separate, more philosophical <laughs> conversation that we have at some point. But once you start to actually unpack all of the roles of the mitochondria, uh, you become a little bit more convinced of that evolutionary theory, 
where they were they were first to the party and um and kind of unbelievably fascinatingly and you point to this in the book that the same bacteria that became that evolved into mitochondria also evolved into a chloroplast the plastid in a leaf um and so in a way energy production got sort of split um to photosynthetic you know um energy generating plants um and then uh um you know life that that could essentially generate chemical energy through the consumption of those plants and then of course one needs carbon dioxide and produces oxygen and the other needs oxygen and produces carbon dioxide so there's an unbelievable sort of yin yang story that begins to uh, evolve around the coincidence of these opposites and you can draw a lot of i think pretty interesting philosophical concepts from there but regardless of that um just just you the can. Just the roles of mitochondria, as as you outlined, so obviously the production of ATP, but it also manages apoptosis in dysfunctional cells. Um, It's regulated the stress response. Um, You know the whole uh, relationship between mitochondria and reactive oxygen species. So essentially, these free radicals that create oxidative stress. So. you know, a certain amount of ROS is good, as you point out in the book, but also in the mitochondria, there is the production of glutathione and melatonin that are these antioxidants. And so when everything is in that Goldilocks zone and working in, in, in balance, then, you know, you, you have human flourishing and thriving. But once, you know, things become out of whack or, or out of balance, then you see all of these downstream impacts that might be physiological, but just as well might be mental. And I think that that's like the, the huge light bulb of, of, of the book, which is fascinating. Um, so if, yeah. Well, I'm glad I get, you get I love it. it. I mean, I mean it's all I've been thinking. Because I'm fascinated yeah, with I it mean, too. It's all I've been thinking about for the last week, talking to my, talking my wife's ear off um, about it. So, awesome. um, so, <laughs> You know, one of my takeaways here is that, okay, well, we need to take care of our mitochondria. Um, So I guess first, let me ask you, what are some of the causes of mitochondrial dysfunction? We'll start there and then maybe we can explore some of the protocols to upregulate performance. So this is the beautiful thing, because once once you connect these dots this turns into actionable yes. information that can help people <laughs> recover so some of the, you know the probably the ubiquitous primary driver of mitochondrial dysfunction is aging um and the reality is when mitochondria fail we die Um, And mitochondria can fail because you don't get oxygen, somebody suffocates you or something like that. Well, you're going to die really quickly. And that's because mitochondria are the only things using oxygen in our cells and in our bodies. So that is what that's about. But, um, But some of the big drivers at younger ages when mitochondria are failing, diet 
you know, eating way too much or eating toxic food sources that are impairing your mitochondria that can then make you hungry and then lead to obesity or impair the mitochondria in your fat cells that, that can also contribute to obesity. But diet is a huge one and that like yeah, we could it's like we could spend hours and hours on what exactly do you mean diet, but diet. Diet yeah, is a huge I mean, one. Exercise. Can I ask you just one question about diet? I mean, yeah, sugar is the scapegoat always. Are, are we talking about refined grains and refined, um, you know, uh, refined sugars and ultra processed foods? Are those the the primary culprits that are essentially making the pancreas work over time to produce enough insulin to get in, to get glucose into the cells, and then eventually the cells say, "Hey, no more of this," and they become insulin resistant. Um, and then you can build up insulin resistance in the brain and all of a sudden, you know, your energy output is, is highly compromised. Is that, is that a f kind of a matchbox description there? So the, so certainly highly processed foods with lots of chemicals, high fructose corn syrup, for instance, is clearly toxic to mitochondria directly. Mm -hmm. We have evidence of that. So if you're eating foods with a lot of fructose, not good. If you're eating lots of foods with sugar, refined sugar, that is not good for your metabolism or your mitochondria either. Um, the refined grains, although giving up grains can be a really powerful treatment, you know, there are, you know, there are cultures like the Chinese culture, for instance, where they have you people have consumed white mm -hmm. rice, which some might say is a re refined grain. They but they've consumed white rice for millennia. And for the most part, they did not have health problems. So I don't think I don't think it's fair to end up saying all refined grains without some clarification and some terms. But again, as a treatment, giving up carbohydrates can be a really powerful, powerful treatment, especially if you do have insulin resistance. But I don't always think of that as that proves that the cause of your disorder was eating grains or eating carbohydrates. Um, instead, I, I separate them. I see lots of different causes that can lead to mitochondrial impairment. But once your mitochondria are impaired, you're likely to have insulin resistance. And then giving up sugar and trying to go more toward fat burning can be a really powerful treatment to heal your metabolism and heal your mitochondria. Okay. Um, but quick answer, get rid of processed foods, get rid of things with lots of chemicals, because the reality is we don't know what the hell those chemicals are doing. And they're probably, guess what folks, they're probably not doing probably anything not. good. Um, let's just assume they're not. The FDA assumes they're, they're fine. <laughs> even though we haven't tested it, even though we don't know for sure they're good for people, we'll just assume they're good until somebody proves otherwise. Guilty or innocent until proven guilty. I think that works really well <laughs> in the United States judicial system. I do not think that works really well in all of the chemicals that get added to our food and our environment. I don't think innocent until proven guilty guilty works well. We should instead assume guilty until proven innocent, but we don't. 
I like that twist on uh, jurisprudence. (laughs) Let's talk maybe about some of the other categories uh, of things that may impair mitochondrial function. So stress impairs um, mitochondrial function in certain cells more than others because the stress response is actually diverting metabolic resources toward the fight or flight system. And Mm. that means other cells aren't going to get as many resources. If stress occurs over long periods of time, those cells that are, you know, having resources diverted away from them can begin to suffer. There are some toxic substances that everybody knows about already. Smoking cigarettes, really bad for your mitochondria. But so is marijuana. And unfortunately, I'm sorry to rain on everyone's parade, so is alcohol. Um, Alcohol, THC and marijuana and uh, smoke and cigarette smoking, they are all very toxic to your metabolic health and your mitochondrial health. And guess what? All of those can lead to mental disorders. Hmm. Shocking. Um, but again, that's I say that facetiously because that's where the theory starts to connect all of the dots. Um, poor sleep can impair mitochondrial function. Um, but sometimes it's things beyond people's control. So an infection or anything that causes high levels of inflammation. Inflammation impairs mitochondrial function, again, in some cells more than others, because inflammation is diverting resources. Mm -hmm. Inflammation is about fighting off something that is threatening you or your body. And, And that means resources are being diverted from other cells. And one of the strategies that they use to divert resources is to actually turn mitochondria off, impair their function in those cells that are deemed less kind of less necessary. And obviously that's beyond people's control. This isn't about assigning fault or blame. So people can get an infection. People can have an allergy or an autoimmune disorder, but the inflammation can impair mitochondrial function. And uh, that can actually result in symptoms of mental illness, but also symptoms of metabolic disorders as well. Um, yeah. And, and I think on this point, you could also point to gut health or the erosion of good gut health, um, you know, whether that results in kind of dysbiosis or leaky gut, intestinal permeability that allows endotoxins to kind of pass into the bloodstream that kind of can stimulate this low-grade chronic inflammation response. So, you know, when we're thinking about, it, it seems anachronistic to think about gut health and mental disorders, right, for a lot of people. But obviously, you know, maintaining a proper gut health and, you know, the um, plethora of good bacteria in your gut and I'm feeding it you know, good prebiotic fiber, and we can get into a little bit about diet when we when we talk about the ketogenic diet. But that's been a big focus for me in terms of uh, reducing my C-reactive protein was fixing my gut and and bringing my inflammation down. So that's just one that uh, that that I always underscore. Absolutely. Um, 
And, you know, although, although it may seem like a lot of different factors, some, some of your listeners may be like, oh my God, there's so many things he's talking about. (laughs) These are all general health and wellness things that most of you already know, or that any good medical practitioner should know. Um, or that any good me- medical practitioner who wants to learn about it can learn pretty quickly because a lot of people are talking about all of these things. It's not rocket science. It's not reinventing the wheel. Um, there are real strategies people can use to get better. Yeah, I think though what is really, really helpful, I know it's helpful for me, is that you explain the mechanism so it is easier to pair the protocol with the mechanism and it makes actually adopting certain behaviors way easier because you actually understand the pathways you know what's going on (laughs) you're not just randomly jabbing at buttons um or you know or you know taking supplements or you know randomly trying new diets you actually are connecting it to real mechanisms so um, I want to talk about a few other processes uh, that are uh, germane to, to mitochondria um, and overall metabolic health. Um, one, which is mitophagy and autophagy, uh, and the other is mitochondrial biogenesis. So can you explain what those terms mean and, and why they're important? Yeah, so... The, the first one that I'll start with is autophagy. Um, so autophagy is a process that our bodies are, are always doing. It basically is the process of getting rid of old or defective proteins or cell parts. Um, th- those older defective things go to lysosomes and get recycled. Um, and then, you know, those proteins or cell parts or membranes are actually degraded and usually reused for energy or to build new ones. Um, So that's always going on, but you can stimulate autophagy. You can kind of put it into hyperdrive through some basic mechanisms like uh, calorie restriction or fasting or intermittent fasting or diets that mimic the fasting state. So that would be Mm -hmm. ketogenic diets or other fasting mimicking diets. Those all stimulate the process of autophagy. And it's kind of confusing to a lot of people because what I'm saying is going without food produces health benefits. And right now, that's not really a message we get from mainstream medicine. We we all hear that, oh, eat six times a day. Keep fueling your body. Your body needs all that calories. You, you need energy, and, and food is where that energy comes from. So keep eating. Eat, eat, eat. And if you eat all day, every day, that'll confer health. We now know that's actually not true. It's probably true for infants and growing children. It it is true for them. And please don't calorie restrict or deprive them or make them fast or intermittently fast. Um, But for adults who are grown and who have plenty of excess calories stored on their body in the form of fat or glycogen or other things, um, it actually can be really helpful. The, The process of mitophagy actually falls under 
autophagy, but it's specific to mitochondria. And what it means is that your cells are getting rid of old or defective mitochondria, recycling them, and then hopefully replacing them with new mitochondria. Mitochondrial biogenesis is that latter part of that equation that I just described for mitophagy. So it is the stimulation of more of the, of the production of more mitochondria. So your cell, like one muscle cell might have 400 mitochondria. If you go yeah. out and exercise that muscle through cardio or through weight training, one of the adaptations that's going to happen is that that cell is going to develop more mitochondria. Now, in order for that cell to get larger, meaning your weight training and trying to grow bigger muscles, it needs more mitochondria because it won't be able to power a bigger muscle without the mitochondria. But even when that cell stays the same size, so in a runner, a long distance runner, a lot of long distance runners are skinny. If you mm. look at them, you're going to look at them and think, well, they're skinny. Where do they get health benefits? They don't have big muscles. They have, they're skinny. They have slim muscles. <laughs> In fact, their muscles are extraordinarily healthier than most other people's. And the one and only one thing that makes them healthier is that they have more mitochondria. Mm. And those extra mitochondria mean that those muscles don't fatigue as easily. That muscle does not give out because those mitochondria are there. And this is where that powerhouse function is actually really critical, that they are there to just crank out power so that that muscle doesn't give out, it doesn't fatigue, and it can run 20 miles or 30 miles or whatever. Um, at, at the end of the day, when cells don't have enough mitochondria or when those mitochondria are defective, that is a problem. It is a health problem and it results in those cells failing or not functioning optimally. Um, sometimes it results in those cells dying. But mm -hmm. all of those are associated with disorders or illnesses or death. And so... In order to prevent that or slow that or reverse that, the two things we can do are induce mitophagy and mitochondrial biogenesis. And if we do those things, people can heal, those cells can heal, and they can start to function normally again. Okay, so we want to adopt protocols that are activating pathways that trigger autophagy, mitophagy, mitochondrial biogenesis. What are some of those protocols? And, you know, let's maybe hover specifically on the ketogenic diet and intermittent fasting, potentially kind of in relationship with one another, but also kind of separate and on their own. So, yeah, both of them will stimulate um, both mitophagy and mitochondrial biogenesis. And again, this is one of the paradoxes. So when your body thinks it's going without food, one of the things that it's doing in addition to autophagy is it's actually making more mitochondria because mm. those mitochondria are actually involved in 
directing resources, they're the things that are burning fat and turning it into ketone bodies. And so your mm. brain needs ketone bodies. And so the mitochondria, your liver cells actually develop a lot more mitochondria because they're being called to action. It's kind of like, oh, all hands on deck. We need more troops. We need more mitochondria because we got a crisis. The organism is struggling. There's a drought or there's a famine. Get to work. Let's call more mitochondria so that they can turn this fat and other fuel sources into ketone bodies. We'll send those ketones up to the brain because the brain needs them. And although on one hand, it's kind of a crisis because the organism thinks it's dying or starving or there's 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 a paucity of food and, and all of that speaks to that should be bad. The reality is it results in tremendous healing. And this is actually why fasting has been used in healing practices <laughs> for millennia in almost every culture. It's actually yeah. not just religious folk, nor it's not kind of quackery. It actually really works. And we now have the science to prove how and why it works. People can only fast for so long, though. And, and if you fast for too long, then you do starve to death, and that's a really bad thing. Um, and so fasting mimicking diets like the ketogenic diet can uh, mimic the fasting state. And um, if you want, uh, I can tell the story that actually, or at least one of the stories that really sent me on this path to just help yeah. people understand, like, what are you really talking about? Like, you're not talking about real mental illness, are you? You're not talking about, <laughs> like, really health. Like, you're just talking about diet and exercise. Uh, that's all I'm hearing, diet and exercise. And yeah, everybody knows that's good for you. But that's, that's not going to stamp out real mental illness. And one of the things that set me on this path, um, I have now seen dozens of patients with chronic depression, bipolar disorder and schizophrenia put their illnesses into full and lasting remission, sometimes hmm. off psychiatric medications. I think the most striking case was a woman um, that I called Mildred in the book. And so she had a horrible abusive childhood. Actually probably had depression and PTSD. And by the time she was 17, she developed schizophrenia, started having daily hallucinations and delusions. She tried numerous antipsychotics, mood stabilizers, and other meds over the ensuing decades. None of them worked to stop her symptoms, but they did make her gain tons of weight. Um, she was miserable. She tried to kill herself at least six times between the ages of 68 and 70. And when she was 70, she got referred to a weight loss clinic where they were using the ketogenic diet, and she decided to give it a try. Within two weeks, not only did she lose, begin losing weight, but she started to notice that her hallucinations were going away. Within months, all of her symptoms of schizophrenia were in full and complete remission. Within six months, she was off all psychiatric meds. She lived for another 15 years, symptom-free, off psychiatric mm -hmm. meds, out of psychiatric hospitals, no more suicide attempts. She had a completely new life. 
And current treatments in the mental health field do not do that. They don't do that for people with schizophrenia. They don't do it for people with bipolar. And sadly, they don't even do it for the majority of people with chronic treatment-resistant depression. Mm. Um, And so that speaks to the power of this theory and the treatments. I mean, the great news is that you know, a lot of times when people develop a theory, you then have to wait 20 years for the treatments to actually, That's right. you know, yeah. see the theory actionable and realized. In many ways, the great news is that this theory started with my witnessing a ridiculously powerful treatment and simply trying to understand how in the hell is this working? Like, this is impossible. This is going against everything I've been taught as a psychiatrist. This this can't be happening. This isn't supposed to happen. People with schizophrenia aren't supposed to go into remission, certainly not off medications and certainly not from a diet. Like, so, so it was that process. So the great news is that the theory helps us connect all of the dots, understand the science, but we have treatments like the ketogenic diet and many, many others. Yeah. And, and you, um, you know, uh, in the book, unpack um, a lot of the data that's been around for essentially a century around the ketogenic diet, which was first developed, as, as you point out, to as a treatment for for epilepsy. And and so it's been it's been around as an accepted uh, treatment. Um, but kind of in the with the efflorescence of, of pharmaceuticals, it's it's been you know, somewhat buried as a, a tertiary treatment or, you know, if even that. So, um, you know, this is not just kind of coming out of thin air. There's actual real uh, history of clinical research around um, the ketogenic diet or fasting mimicking um, protocols. And yeah, that was the godsend for me is that, you know, as an academic psychiatrist, if I didn't have all of that clinical and neuroscience research, I would have just been laughed at. Um, I probably wouldn't have even said anything. <laughs> just, I would have, I would have <laughs> shut my mouth, kept quiet, not done anything. But yes, in fact, we've got decades of neuroscience research documenting how and why this diet stops seizures. And many of those mechanisms of action play a direct role in mental health, mm-hmm. And to bring it all full circle, those mechanisms of action include mitophagy, mitochondrial biogenesis, autophagy, and just improvement in metabolism overall, like improving insulin signaling and other things. And so it it all kind of fits together and connects. Yeah. Well, you know, I want to be mindful of your schedule, Chris, and... Um... You know, I think what people really can take away from, you know, as they become curious about unpacking this topic is that any protocol that is going to upregulate your metabolism is going to address not only chronic disease, but mental disorders. And and so, you know, obviously we touched a little bit here on intermittent fasting protocol. Personally, I, I, I have a, eight, a 16-8, you know, protocol where I consolidate my feeding window into eight hours. And that seems to work pretty well for me. I'm not fundamentalist about it. You know, I cheat on the edges of it, but 
overall, it, it, it has proved to be um, an excellent protocol, uh, you know, for me. Um, but obviously, there's other ones, you know, sleep is huge. And in the book, you talk um, significantly about uh, um, developing consistent circadian rhythms and exposure to blue light at the right times. And I know you had a recent conversation with Andrew Huberman, who harps on, on that topic <laughs> uh, quite consistently. Um, and then, you know, stress reduction techniques. Um, I think, you know, you make some great points in the book about how, how high cortisol levels can limit uh, autophagy and also how being in this sympathetic state can divert resources, you know, away from digestion and proper metabolism and obviously towards your extremities and towards, you know, elevated heart rate and respiratory rate, et cetera. Um, so, you know, whether or not you're adopting like a meditation protocol or uh, a deep rest protocol, you know, essentially anything, any protocol that you can um, adopt that really focuses on upgrading insulin sensitivity and and metabolic function is going to um, improve cognition and improve your mental health. Is that right? Yeah. And yeah. you know, I would I would the only caveat I would give is obviously we want to do it using natural methods that improve metabolism. So I mean, mm. there are lots of substances that powerfully stimulate mitochondrial function and metabolism. Um, so cocaine is one example. Amphetamines <laughs> are an example. Um, uh, nicotine is pretty powerful unto itself in stimulating mitochondrial function and metabolism. So, you know, we you can take stimulation too far with extreme medications or substances like those. Um, and they can become addictive. It can become problematic. And the way I look at that is that, you know, you're really dysregulating metabolism in those circumstances. And those can be mm -hmm. helpful in the short run. They can pick people up. They can give them energy. They can help them lose weight. They can do all sorts of things that on the surface seem beneficial. But you, I, I, I'm a big fan of natural <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> remedies. <laughs> Um, diet, exercise, sleep, stress management. You mean avoiding. you're not prescribing cocaine for I'm mental I'm not prescribing disorder. cocaine, <laughs> even though it does stimulate uh, mitochondrial activity um, <laughs> in a hyper way. Yes. Um, well, I think that's a, that's a responsible move, Dr. Palmer. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you know... Uh, I often think about chronic disease as really a result of adaptive mechanisms being hijacked by culture that essentially our, our culture has outpaced our evolution. You know, storing fat could be seen as an adaptive advantage when there were times of scarcity. But in the Western world, there's, it's very rare that there are times of scarcity because we always have access to Postmates or Uber Eats and, you know, in the palm of our hand, we can access and avail ourselves of any food in and out of season, you know, within minutes. And so we're on a constant 
feeding cycle. So what used to be an adaptive mechanism <laughs> um, to store fat within the kind of with the impending winter has now, you know, become patently maladaptive. And um, and I think, you know, sometimes, you know, it's it's just, a, you know, leveraging your common sense and, you know, really thinking through, you know, what were the adaptive mechanisms that we developed as humans over millennia and how can we best align with those mechanisms, the foundational intelligence of nature and its and its production, um, it, you know, in um, how can we do that kind of while also managing to navigate the modern world? And uh, and I think this is a, one of the great challenges. But thank God we have you leading us through the wilderness. And uh, and I also just want to say, kind of in in closing, you know, I read the book, but I also listened to it um, on Audible. And um, you know, at the end, you were given really an exhortation, um, a, really a plea for people to really um learn about this and to to spread this valuable information in a way that i found to be so incredibly moving and, and honestly quite emotional um you know your commitment uh really from your really heartfelt commitment to relieve suffering is on uh is on um is on display uh, in the book. And I found it just, um, incredibly compassionate and lovely and, and just very, very grateful for you and who you are and the work you're doing. Well, thank you. There. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah, it, I, I actually, <laughs> I actually did start crying when I was reading some of those <laughs> last yeah. words. Cause I was thinking about the people that I've worked with, the people, mm -hmm. the people who didn't make it the people who yeah. committed suicide, the people who are tormented, the people, um, and they need help and they want help and they're desperate for help now. And I actually do feel like we have solutions available today for them, but the only way they'll ever get those solutions are for people to learn about this and then do something that you can't just read the book and then forget about it. You've, we need everybody to be spreading the word and helping. And um, we need so many systemic changes, um, mm -hmm. access to care. Uh, it's a huge task. And it's overwhelming sometimes, you know, a billion people. <laughs> it's a lot of people. Yeah. Um, well, I don't know anyone who's not touched by this and it, it's obviously you point directly to the folks that are suffering often in shame and in isolation and the loneliness associated with that but there's also impacts on families um who are the caregivers often oftentimes and then of course just the you know the societal expense you know i i, you know, I live in los angeles you know, and it's very, very easy for people to get up in arms around the homeless crisis here in Los Angeles. But if you move even, you know, 10 feet upstream from that, what you really find is a, is a mental health crisis. And, um, 
And uh, so th this is an epidemic that has its tentacles everywhere, everywhere. And, um, and I, I just don't even really know of a, of a greater challenge or, a, a, uh, or of a topic that requires more um, thought and action. And so again, you know, thank you for doing your part. Well, thank you. Thank you for being a reader and thank you for giving yeah. me this opportunity to talk about my work and the book and for helping to spread the word. Yeah. Well, to be continued. Thank you, Dr. Chris Palmer. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Dr. Chris Palmer. Be sure to check out his thought-provoking book, Brain Energy. And if you enjoy this show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. If you're a regular listener, you know how much effort we put into this show's creation, and we really do our best to keep sponsors and ads to a minimum. So if you're looking for a way to support our efforts, best way is to subscribe to Commune. You'll access more than 100 courses featuring the world's top authors and thought leaders. You can check it out, no strings attached, for 14 days or free at onecommune.com slash trial. Of course, feel free to reach out to me directly with suggestions, questions, criticism of the constructive variety at jeffk at onecommune.com. Lastly and not leastly, I'd like to thank the folks that make this show possible week over week over week, including Jake Laub, Megan Stone, Violet Augustine, Silvana Alcala, and Ryan Tillotson. Okay, that's all from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I am here for you. <laughs>